0: upon grace for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God the only God who was at the father's side he has made him known our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 1 by the word of His power. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hey, happy Thanksgiving weekend, and welcome to everyone. It's great to be with you today. If we've never met, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Community Church. So we're beginning. Um, what's called the season of Advent this week. Advent is a word that just means coming or arrival. And Advent is a month that the universal church sets aside to reflect and prepare uh, for Christmas time. I created this series And then I went and Googled when Advent actually starts and it's next week. But because we're overachievers at Faith Community Church, we're just going to start this week, if that's okay, all right? So you get a bonus Advent week uh, this year. And to do that, we're going to teach through uh, what's called the prologue of John's gospel. That's the first 18 verses of John's gospel that Elise just read. And I want to share with you uh, words of a hymn that serve as the inspiration for... This series, Veiled in Flesh, even if you're not a churchgoer, okay, if this is the first time you've darkened the door of a church in decades, I would bet that you've heard these words. I would bet you sing them along with your car radio every year, and maybe you haven't even thought about what you're singing, uh, but here they are. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel almost certainly heard those words before. You will hear them this week, probably on the radio. They're from a a hymn called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And they're the the inspiration for this series, Veiled in Flesh. They articulate what the Bible calls the mystery of godliness. That's from 1 Timothy 3.16. The mystery of godliness that Jesus was made known in the flesh and resurrected by the Spirit and taken up into glory. And by mystery, we don't mean something that is only for super-duper spiritual people or only for the super-initiated. What God means when he calls this a mystery is that this is one of those pieces that once you have it in place, everything else will fall into place for you. Okay, so if the, the meaning of your life or the purpose of the universe, or why we're here is like a a, a puzzle to you, a cryptex puzzle, the incarnation of Jesus is one of those things that will make all the letters line up and everything fall into place once you really see what's going on there. Again, it's not that this is only for the super-initiated or super-spiritual. This is something that God has hidden in plain sight for everyone to see. But because it's so unnatural to us, because it's such a different way of thinking than we're used to, we see the incarnation, the infleshing of Jesus. Um, I I couldn't think of a better phrase this week, but like a calf staring at a new gate. Does that phrase mean anything to people in Hudson? Okay, where where I come from, it it means you, you see something and you think, I know what that is, but I don't know what that is. And what do I, like I know what a baby is, and I'm, I'm at least familiar with the concept of God, but what am I supposed to do with this? Between now and Christmas, we're going to spend some time reflecting on that in the Gospel of John. And I, let's, today we're just going to look at the first few verses. Uh, so here they are again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning. This is the way the whole Bible begins. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John, the author of this, is absolutely trying to draw your attention to that opening verse. He's trying to set the context for the story he's about to tell. We have four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one begins in a slightly different place. Well, John begins in the beginning. As though to say, if you want to understand what has happened with Jesus, you need to go back. You need to go way, way back to the beginning and even before the beginning. Okay, how can Jesus say in John chapter 17 verse 5, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. How can he say, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the earth? Who is Jesus? Who was Jesus before he had the name Jesus? Who was he before he put on a nature like ours, before he was enfleshed? And what does all of that mean? In the beginning was the word And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Just like the opening verses of Genesis. This is a tightly structured, carefully crafted, every single word is carefully chosen. There's actually a pattern if you care about this kind of thing. There's a pattern in Greek, five words, seven words, five words, seven words. Genesis begins in almost the same way. And the outside lines... Highlight or they point to the eternal cosmic preexistence of the Word. In other words, the Word that John is about to introduce us to, the Word shares all of the eternal attributes of God, and then the inside lines highlight the identity of the Word. He was with God, and He is God. And then it's clear in verse 2, and from everything that follows, that the Word is a He not an it. It doesn't say it was with God. It says through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that's been made. In him was life. No Greek philosopher would ever talk about things that way. No eastern religious mystic would ever talk about things that way. When Jewish theologians talked about the wisdom of God, they did not mean this. This is something totally new. Something completely unheard of. You can also observe that while God and the word are one and the same, they're also somehow distinct. The word was with God, the way that you're with the person you're sitting with right now, and the word was God. So there's a reason that spiritual darkness is terrified even by the mention of Jesus' name. There's a reason he can touch defiled things and they become holy. There's a reason that Jesus received worship from people which is only reserved for God and yet he talks with God the way that you or I would. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now just You know how it is whenever we start a new book at Faith Community Church, you get a long history lesson and you love it so much, thank you. (laughs) Only one thing today, okay? Just a little about the audience that John is writing to because it really matters today. John is writing to people whose native language and their outlook on the world is Greek, okay? If you were to read through it this week, go home and read it this week, you'll notice he makes... Uh, More than a dozen passing references to Old Testament stories that many of us won't even catch, but he doesn't bother to stop and explain those. So, uh, one thing we can see is that John's audience grew up either in church or in synagogue. These are people, probably a younger generation, that grew up. They know the stories of the Bible. They don't need them explained, but they're not familiar with current Jewish language and customs. So when you read it this week, you'll see John takes time to explain Aramaic words and he takes time to explain different features of Jerusalem and he explains modern Jewish customs. So our best guess is that John wrote this for people scattered around the Greco-Roman world whose parents and grandparents raised them in church or raised them in the synagogue. But whatever their parents and grandparents were, these people are culturally Greek. They think and speak and look at the world the way that their Greek neighbors do. And what John is doing is connecting that story, the story that they live in, he's connecting that with the story of Jesus to say, guys, things you are after are here in Jesus, these first few, uh, few verses are a great example of what I'm talking about. The word, word, uh, is rather famously the Greek word, logos. Okay, let's say that together because it's so fun to learn new, new words. Say logos. 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 It's apparent, Porter says it's not logos, it's logos, okay? Logos. Logos. In the first century, this word was used in a lot of different ways, but they all kind of run in the same vein. Uh, the Greek, Greeks could see that there's something behind the creation of the universe. Even without our scientific instruments, they could see the universe is astonishingly well ordered and rational. Today, we would call it fine-tuned. There's a fine-tuning to the universe, and so there must be something out there. Something behind and beyond uh, what we can actually see. And they, turn, they coined this term, logos, 600 years before the birth of Christ, to describe this ordering principle that the f- Star Wars would call it the force, you know, or something that holds everything together. Plato called it the form. There's this form behind everything we see. The logos was the knowledge that governs all things, it just cannot be random. Okay, the universe just cannot be completely random. Well, by the first century, after hundreds of years of reflection and observation, many people had concluded that there is no logos. There's just no meaning to the universe, or maybe it's there, but we are never going to know what it is. it is. It's beyond our reach. So I hope you can see why this would be relevant for people in the 21st century today. This is exactly where we live. This is our own situation. Whether you've thought about this much or not, and maybe you wouldn't say it this way, I'm not trying to insult anybody or anything like that, but every one of us here have inherited this story by default. And that is that maybe there's something out there, maybe there's not. Uh, Some people would say, probably not. The vast majority of people would say, yeah, there's probably something. But whatever it is, it's out of reach. And therefore, if we're not going to go insane, we're going to have to find a way to cope. We're going to have to create our own meaning and and find our own ways of creating meaning out of the world that we have inherited. And we need to decide what that's going to be. Is it going to be family? Are we going to create the meaning of our lives out of our family or our work or self-improvement or philosophy or pleasure or making the world a better place or something. But we need to decide what, that, what that's going to be, and then we need to decide who we are in the midst of that, and in the end, it's the best that we can do. Now, this, is, this works really well uh, in our context because it couples so nicely with our aversion to all authority, I mean, it couples really, really well with our sense of individuality. The idea that I get to set the, you know, the the terms of my own existence is very appealing. The challenge is that it only works under two conditions. And philosophers have been writing about this for a long time. Number one, it will only work as long as you don't think too hard about it. And number two, it will only work as long as life is going pretty well. Because suffering has a way of destroying the illusion that you create your own meaning. When the thing you're building your life around begins to come apart in your hands, well, then you come apart at the same time. And so John has chosen his words very, very carefully. And the message is that there is absolutely a logos. There is a word and there is absolutely 100% meaning, purpose, and significance to everything, including your life. And it's a significance that nothing can shake. The problem, he's saying, is that everyone's looking in the wrong place. We're trying to find it in philosophy, or romance, or pleasure. We're trying to find this thing that holds everything together, and he's, he, right out of the gate, he says, the thing you are looking for is a person. A person. And when you see him, you can't unsee it. The, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Three things... So I don't know whether the, I don't know whether to call the word a title or a metaphor or a name. I, it, I think it's an we're gonna it's a name. Okay? What does the name, the word, reveal about Jesus? Number one, the word reveals the thoughts and intentions and in heart of God. Okay, what is the relationship between you and your words? One of the things that it does is that our words, you know, they proceed from us, either by, you know, breathing and speaking or through your hand onto the pen and paper. Your words proceed out from you, and they embody the real you. It's only by your words that we really get to know you, that we can really understand who you are and and meet your true self. Last night, I was at an anniversary party, a 25th anniversary party, and we were trying to guess all these things about the couple who kissed who first, who asked who out first, who proposed to who, who's the better cook. I mean, all these different things. And uh, I've known these people for 10 years. I got more than half of the questions wrong, okay? Because there's only so much you can learn about a person by just observing them. There's only so much you can learn about a person by watching them. Sooner or later, they've gotta talk. Only a person's words can help you know and, and understand the real them. Darcy and I just celebrated our 18th anniversary, the anniversary of our first date. I could have got, well, I did get to know a lot of things about Darcy by just watching her. That's also really creepy. <laughs> and at some point, you've just gotta ask her out. And you've just got to let her talk. Why do you love volleyball so much? Why, why do you dislike X, Y, or Z so much? She's got to be able to talk or you'll never know her. And yet the way that we approach God sometimes is just like that. We draw far too many conclusions about God by just observing nature. Or by just observing history. Or honestly, by, by observing yourself. If that was all that you had to go on, you might come to a lot of really, you're going to get more than half wrong, okay? You're going to come to a lot of really strange conclusions because it's not enough. Sooner or later, he's got to talk to you. I heard a pastor tell a story about a sophomore literature class that he took in college where they were reading a short story together and the class was arguing about the meaning of the story and what do these things symbolize and et cetera, et cetera. And the the professor at one point said, you're all wrong. This is what it means. And they said, well, how do you know? He said, well, I wrote it. That's how I know. God has to be allowed to speak. And we just read in Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. The word Jesus is God's final word to humanity. So what do you want to know? I mean what have you always been dying to know about God, about spirituality, about why you're here? The word is the only way you're going to get into the thoughts and intentions and the heart of God. Second, the Word also reveals to us this incredibly dynamic relationship that is at the foundation of everything. So uh, a person's words embody their thoughts and their inner self, but they are also distinct from the person. Right? So if a king uh, gives an edict, okay, and someone writes it down on a scroll and carries it to the furthest ends of his empire, is the king the scroll? No. No, those are two different, here, here are some words that I've written, I am not this. They're two different things. And yet, if you disregard those words, are you just disregarding a scroll. No, because they're kind of one and the same. So you say, well, well, which is it going to be? Are they two different things or are they one and the same? Yes. Yeah, that, that's, that's part of the point of this naming of Jesus. He was with God. There's some distinction between he and God and yet he was God. They're one and the same. So it's common in pop theology today to say that Jesus was a poor but charismatic visionary Jewish teacher who taught us about love and acceptance but he never made any claims to anything supernatural and tragically you know he was put to death as visionaries often are uh, and that was it his resurrection if there was a resurrection at all was a spiritual resurrection he was resurrected in the hearts of his disciples so to speak as they reflected on his teaching about love and acceptance and over time As more and more people received that teaching, uh, the legend of his divinity began to grow with it. But it wasn't until the third or fourth century that Jesus became God. That's how the story goes. The, The problem is that none of that holds up. Okay, we have a fragment of this gospel of John within shouting distance of its authorship, just within a few years. What we see in history are fiercely monotheistic Jews, okay, the last people on earth who would ever ascribe deity to any person, very not, not gradually, but suddenly and immediately talking about Jesus as though he were pre-existent, the, the creator God, the God of Israel, not gradually, but expressing worship. The earliest Christian documents that we have show us that the church was expressing worship to Jesus as the God of Israel in all kinds of different ways. He is the God of Israel in the flesh. And what that means is that the word opens a window into a relationship, or I don't even know what to call it, a relationship or a dynamic, the inner workings of God That stretched to before the beginning before the foundations of the earth if you're looking for the meaning of the universe if you're trying to understand what your life is about if you if you want to know why is there something instead of nothing i mean this is the beginning this is the foundation of everything just as our words proceed from us, the Son of God proceeds eternally from the Father, distinct and yet the same. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Listen to this conversation from John chapter 14. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough. You know, just like many people today are saying, if God would just show up, if he would just stand at the foot of my bed and great, you know, raging glory, I'd believe. Philip's saying the same thing. Just show us the Father and we'll believe. And Jesus says, Haven't I, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? For those of, for those of you waiting for that, apparition to appear at your bed. Do you really want that, by the way? I'll just leave that alone. When we say that the word has proceeded from God in all of eternity, we're saying there's never been any time When the Son was not proceeding from the Father and revealing the Father and returning glory to the Father and the Father entrusting all things to the Son. What scripture teaches and what we're getting a window into here is that everything that there is, everything that exists, finds its beginning in this eternal, unchanging relationship of love and joy and unity and peace and everything. So if you're asking, why is there something and not nothing? There's part of the answer. That God in, in eternal love and joy wanted to, sh- wanted to create, to share that, to expand it. Why did you have kids? Because you're in love. And that's just what happens. You fall in love and bam, babies follow usually, okay? Uh, there, Ephesians chapter three says that, the, that God, God is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named meaning that the the character, the structure of the human family, where love just expands and grows, that's the essential nature of God. And we're getting a window into that in this name, the Word. That also means, by the way, that, that these things, love and joy and unity and peace and purpose, those are actually the most natural things in the universe. And that our current condition, that this present darkness, the chaos and the confusion, the heartache that we live in today, on an eternal scale, it's just a blip. It has always been this way, and one day when everything is redeemed, it will always be this way. So as the word... Jesus reveals the heart, the thoughts, and the intentions of God. He reveals this mysterious relationship at the heart of everything in creation. And finally, the word reveals the creative and redemptive power of God as well. In Scripture, everything that God does, he does by what? By speaking. In the opening verses of Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. As the Word, Jesus is the creative and redemptive power of God in the flesh. Listen to this from Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. There's another window into the meaning of the universe. You were made for Jesus. Everything was made for Jesus. So Jesus is the creative power of God, but he's also the means by which God is redeeming everything. If you go home today and read the first chapter of Ephesians, you pay attention. Every single verb in that first chapter is something God is doing, and it's always in Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, every single time. So all that God is doing in redemption in in calling you, saving you, shedding his blood for you, revealing his will to you, all of that happens through the word, through Jesus. So there's a reason, okay, that Jesus can calm the storm and walk on water and raise the dead. There's a reason that Jesus can open the eyes of the blind and, and touch the leper and make the lame walk. These are not tricks, this is just what happens when the creative redemptive power of god from all of eternity encounters this temporarily broken universe he heals it so because the word of god is how it, because the word is how god created all things it is also the way he's redeeming all things there's a church father that uses this analogy he says if you had a masterpiece painting in front of you and somehow it got really badly damaged uh, it, you know scarred beyond recognition how would you repair it well you'd have to find the master painter again and he would use the exact same materials to fix the painting as he did to make the painting and that is exactly what god is doing in jesus he created you and he created everything around you through the word and that is how he is redeeming everything as well so i get to ask not just what do you what do you want to know but How do you want to be healed? What do you need repaired in your life? What do you need restored? Come to Jesus. This is how John begins his account of the life of Jesus. There is a logos. There is a word. And that means that everything including you, including your life, absolutely has meaning, As purpose, has significance, and the problem is we're just looking in the wrong place. And it's all right there in a person. If it had said, in the beginning was a path to follow, or in the beginning was a law to obey, in the beginning is a thing for you to do, well then only... You know, strong and moral people would have access to that. If it it said, "In the beginning was a philosophy," or "In the beginning was wisdom," well, only the wise would have access to that then. But it says, "In the beginning was was the Word." Can you hear a word? Can you trust a word? Anybody can do that. And the word, as it happens, is a person. A person, you know, the question ultimately comes down to, okay, you've seen the life of Jesus, you've heard of what Jesus has done, can you trust him? Philosophies don't die, no philosophy ever died for you. No path to enlightenment ever laid down their life for you. We're talking about a word that you can hear and you can see what he's done. And you can, you can say, I will, I will believe this, no matter who you are. This is the mystery of godliness. Godliness. Not that we've been given a path or an example or a philosophy, but a word, a powerful, redemptive universe-creating and redeeming word. And, then, and done it in the most approachable, humble way imaginable, as a baby in a manger. And anyone can approach that. Here are just a couple of invitations for you to consider as we begin Advent together, okay? first of all for christians if you're a follower of jesus the fact that he is introduced to us as the word should really transform and light on fire your relationship with god's written word okay with the scripture even in the old testament before the incarnation of jesus the old testament teaches Wherever God's written word is, he promises to be there also. If you want to find God, if you want to know God and walk with him, go to where his word is written or spoken or taught, and he, will be, he promises to meet you there, even before the incarnation of Jesus. Now, on the other side of Christmas, I mean, this sheds all kinds of light on what is happening every time you sit down and open your Bible. This means that reading scripture now in a, in a personal living relationship with Jesus is like reading the Lord of the Rings with Tolkien next to you on the couch. And anything, I mean, anything you want to know, just ask the author. This is like reading Shakespeare, reading Hamlet with Shakespeare at your elbow. Because the the promise of Jesus is: I will be where my word is, and my spirit will like speak to you. He will make it make sense and jump off the page. And this is how we're going to walk together. So I just encourage you again, I know, okay, like every time Prince preaches, the application is read your Bible and pray. Yep. (laughs) I will stop saying it when we all do it, okay? I'm just encouraging Christians to personally engage with the living God during the season of Advent. It's dark, there's nothing to do outside anyway, there's nothing good on Netflix, all of our football teams really stink anyway. Like, let's just, what a a great season to just engage personally with the living word in his written word. And if you're one of those folks, you know, like, dude, I have tried that. I've tried like 10 Bible reading plans I've tried to engage with God's word. I've been getting tired of hearing about it. Nothing happens. I just encourage you again, sit down with someone who loves doing this stuff and ask them, would you just like for a month meet with me and show me how to read and what you do? Does anyone, I always compare it to, um, I have friends who are foodies. I'm not a foodie myself, but I have friends who are foodies. They're so fun to go out to eat with. They use words like aioli, and reduction, and the, their, their delight, just their, just their countenance over the menu is palpable. You think, wow, I, they're just calories to me. I don't understand what we're doing right now, but I love your joy, and I love being with, if you're one of those people, and we just love you so much, but you just, you just struggled and struggled and struggled to connect with God's word, find a foodie. Find a foodie to sit with you and say, well, this is what I do. Let's do it together. You know, do you know, does that make sense what I'm asking you to do? Second, if you, if you have friends in your life, family members, loved ones in your life, that you, you're just, you long for them to know this living word and to be in a relationship with God, this is a great season to just invite them to look at him again. Christmas is one of the only times left in the year when basically everyone is still open to magical things. Okay. we watch the dumbest movies about elves at this time of year and all this stuff why not try Jesus to invite to over and over again we'll see this later but over and over the, the invitation in the gospel of John is would you come and see we've we've met the son of God I cannot explain this to you would you just come meet him we have all kinds of opportunities to do that so you know, we, we stream these services online. It is so easy to invite a friend to watch online. They don't even have to come in. Nobody's gonna see them or know them, and they can just watch. But over the years, what I have found, one of the best invitations you can give is, if someone is, is wrestling with spiritual questions, I just invite them, would you just read the Gospel of John with me? Read three chapters every week. Write down all your questions. They don't even have to be about John. Just write down everything you've ever wanted to know about God, spirituality, the universe, everything. And we'll get together and we'll just talk about it. And I've seen people meet Jesus through the Gospel of John time and time and time again. If you are one of those people that are here or you're watching online or or a friend invited you and you are trying to get your hands around why you're here, what it all means look, come and see. Keep coming from now until Christmas and just look at what John says about his friend, the living word of God. Let me pray for us and we'll sing together. Would you just take a minute right now where you are? I want to invite you, if if there are, two people in your life that you would love to meet Jesus, would you take a minute right now to pray for them by name and ask God for help inviting them and calling them. Father in heaven, thank you for the word, for speaking a word into the world that we could see and touch and know. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for redeeming, for creating, for calling. And We ask, God, that you would do that in our lives, in our city, in increasing measure. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.